Welcome to Museum Chat Live, a fairly regular podcast series brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center. We're bringing you all things to do with St. Catharines, our history, and what's going on at our museum. Today, you're listening to, well, me. My name is Sarah Nixon, public programmer here at the St. Catharines Museum. Our community is filled with diverse stories, and we recognize that our story begins with the Indigenous peoples of this land. We acknowledge that we are recording this podcast on lands that have been inhabited by Indigenous peoples for millennia, and we would like to honor the centuries of Indigenous peoples who've walked on Turtle Island before us. This is the first in a series of episodes that explores the bridges that cross the Rutwelland Canal. Most of the time, when we think of these bridges, we think of being stuck at them. Anyone living or working in St. Catharines has said at one time, sorry I'm late, I was stuck at a bridge. Many bridges that cross the canal from Port Weller to Port Colborne are often just thought of as part of the infrastructure that gets us from point A to point B, with sometimes a wait in between. But when you are stuck at a bridge, waiting for a ship to pass, have you ever really thought about what that bridge represents? We can actually tell so many stories and explore our history in new ways by talking about the bridges that cross the Welland Canal. So, we share with you the Museum Chat Live Canal Crossings mini-series. Over the next four podcast episodes, we will adventure through a few of the many stories we can tell about bridges. To help me tell these stories, I've invited a very special guest on today's episode. Des Corin is a longtime volunteer docent at the St. Catharines Museum. He's one of the more familiar faces here, and if you've visited the museum, you've likely seen him. Des is very well researched in St. Catharines history and the Welland Canal. You may remember him from a mini-series we produced back in 2018 about the fallen workers of the Welland Canal. He is currently working on a project documenting each of the bridges that have crossed the Welland Canal. Des, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Sarah, for inviting me. This little project for me was actually a winter works job. It came to me standing on the platform one day that the tourists that I talked to from mostly the United States, but all over the world, look at our canal, watch the ships go up and down, and are much more interested in our bridges than we actually are. It just seemed like they, they well, I've even seen the case where they have purposely waited that they could get a picture of the ship under the bridge. And it dawned on me that I can't imagine anyone living in St. Catharines ever being that concerned about the bridge other than being annoyed that it was up. So this actually turned out to be more of a semi-human nature uh, exercise and just to keep my mind active in, in the wintertime. When the tourists are on, on, on our platform, they can see Homer, number four. They can see Glendale, number five. And if we're lucky, I can point out to them uh, Carlton Street, number three, when it's up, and the same with the railway bridge, number six. So we are really fortunate at the museum that we have four bridges that we can talk about. And like I said, People from outside Niagara seem to love bridges. People who live here hate them. 
It's so true, and I think that's interesting that we have these tourists who are so fascinated with things that locals often see as more of an annoyance. <laughs> but I guess it's true, seeing a lift bridge for the first time is probably a pretty cool experience, right? Yep, sure is. Oh, awesome. Well, thanks, Des. We're so excited uh, for you to come on and talk about this project with us. Um, over the course of this mini-series, Des and I will explore the different types of bridges that cross the canal, the different purposes they've served, and how they've shaped and impacted the communities that have grown alongside the canal. We'll consider why some bridges were demolished, how the tunnel tunnels were constructed, We'll discuss the darker history around the tragic accidents on the bridge and also lighten the mood by delving into that one time Glendale Bridge was used as a VIP tourist attraction. To passersby, a bridge might just be a built structure in the background, but we hope that this podcast will encourage us to reconsider how we think of these bridges in our community. Hey, maybe it'll make us think differently the next time we're stuck at a bridge. I am fairly confident that anyone living or working in Niagara has likely crossed a bridge over the Welland Canal at least once. So maybe I'm not the only one who's wondered how many bridges in fact make that crossing. Maybe some of our listeners have also noticed that all of the bridges are numbered, but the math doesn't really make sense. The sign on the Lakeshore Road Bridge says bridge number one, but the bridge at Clarence Street in Port Colborne is marked bridge 21. Des, is there really 21 bridges that cross the canal? Well, if we're talking about actually today, the answer is no. Presently, there are nine, uh, eight of which were original. Um, Just a little background. The original plans in 1913 uh, didn't go into any detail whatsoever, but it was planned at that time that there would be, in fact, 21 bridges. That's why we ended up with what we did as far as numbers go. But uh, like I said, there was 21 originally on the 1913 plan. Okay, so in 1913, there was supposed to be 21 bridges built to cross the canal. Why did they not end up building all 21 bridges? Well, there was actually, they actually did build 20. Num- bridge number two, which was supposed to have been a bridge at approximately where Linwell Road is today, it was the one that got axed. But really what happened, uh, we, as I said, we started in 1913, but we didn't really think about bridges in any seriousness until 1923. And in 1923, the Welland Canal Company came up with, well, they realized that the canal was underway. They had to do something. So they, they sent out uh, forms for companies to submit designs, engineering, and specifications. And then after that was all gathered together, then that went out to contractors uh, to submit bids, and consequently, we ended up with with uh, 20 bridges being built by four different companies, uh, which you know entailed uh, different designs, and of course, uh, the fact that there was four different companies. We had uh, Hamilton Bridge, we had Canadian Bridge, we had Dominion Bridge of Lachine, Quebec, and with the Scherzer Rolling Lift Company of Pittsburgh. They were the four companies that actually built 
the, uh, the, the bridges across the canal. That's interesting. And I think something else that I think about is 20, even 20 bridges being built or planned to being built in 1913. There is a different driving population back then than compared today, right? And, and also population trends. Like when the Welland Ship Canal was built, they planned the route, especially below the escarpment, to be kind of out of the way where there was abundance of open and available space. So there wasn't a lot of people here. And so I find it really interesting that, you know, they built the canal where there was a lot of open space and then they decided to put these bridges in. And it was really only after the construction of the canal that these industries and communities really began to grow around the canal. So my question then is, if there weren't a lot of drivers on the road in 1913, like there wasn't a lot of cars compared to today, then why were all of these bridges being constructed? Well, good question. Actually, if you look at it, bridge number eight and number 15 were both railroad bridges. Bridge eight was built by NS&T Railroad, and number 15 was built by Michigan Central. Now, those bridges were actually in operation as early as 1916, even before the canal was really getting underway. But once things were going smoothly, uh, if you look at the bridge construction, uh, bridge number one, uh, Lakeshore Road, was a, was a dual bridge, both for road and rail. Uh, bridge number four, believe it or not, uh, Homer, was built to handle rail, although it never really did develop. Uh, bridge number six is, of course, the one we recognize today as, as the double bascule uh, right by lock four. Number eight was up at Thorold, just a few hundred yards beyond the guard locks, uh, the guard gate, I should say, off lock seven. Uh, railroad bridge number 10 was uh, just behind uh, Hayes Dana Frame and uh, Drivetrain Division. 15 is the bridge I already mentioned, built even as the canal was just starting. Bridge number 17. Uh, railroad bridge at Forks Road. That bridge still exists today. And finally, bridge number 20 was, is, was in Port Colburn. So of the original group, eight different bridges were one way or another to handle railroad. And of course, if you think about it, 1913, 1920s, railroad was king. Automobiles were just something new that people could look at but couldn't afford to, to actually own. So that was one of the reasons why in the very beginning, railroad bridges were way more important or more, much, much more consideration than, than any other kind. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, especially given the time period, right? So there, so the bridges, the people who are building the bridges are more concerned with railroad traffic and getting trains who are carrying people and cargo and goods across rather than commuters in their cars. Absolutely. That was how it all came together. Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I did notice when you were listing the different bridges that there are a lot of different types of bridges that are constructed over the canal, too. Can you explain why there is a difference in these different bridge designs and maybe outline the purposes that they serve? Like I hear you said, you know, a double bastule bridge or a vertical lift bridge. Why are there different types of bridges and what purposes do they serve? 
Well, bridges, if you if we want to look at what 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 happened back when the uh, original two railroad bridges were what was called swing. In other words, they had like a, a support in the middle. They only turned 90 degrees, and that was that was the original two uh, two railroad bridges. They were swing. There also was some called single uh, leaf rolling bascule and double leaf rolling bascule. If you look up bascule, it actually is French for meaning balance scale. And if you think about history, and you think of the old, the old uh, forts and the old uh, castles in, in Europe in the early 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, they all had a moat, they all had a bridge. And those bascule bridges, were, that's where that originated from. Whenever you had to close the bridge, it, you pulled it up, and consequently, that, that was how that began. Now, the bascule bridges were particularly uh, well used uh, where, the, where the, the span was not really that large. If you look at the mechanics of it, you, the counterweight on a bascule bridge had to be double the weight or more, in some cases way more, depending on the length of, of the actual deck of the, of the bridge itself whereas the vertical lift bridges, which came later, had the two towers, and their counterweights only had to be equal to the weight of the, of the actual deck. The downside to, to the lift bridge, of course, was the fact that, that you didn't have unlimited height. If you look at the bridges as they were built, the uh, lowest lift was at Allenburg. That bridge, number 11, it lifted 108 feet 2 inches. And the, the tallest was uh, number 21 at Clarence Street, which lifted 115 feet, 2 inches. So you had a combination. You had to look at, at uh, cost for one thing. The, the uh, longer the bridge, obviously, the more it was going to cost one way or another. But then if you went with a single or a double bascule, it cost way more than what a, what a vertical lift would. So it was a combination of the area that you had to work with plus factoring in the, the potential costs. Wow, I find that so interesting, especially because, again, I just look at these bridges and I say, oh, hey, that's a bridge. But no, there was a lot of uh, technical innovation and consideration in choosing what types of bridges were going where, what they were being used for, how much they would cost. I find it interesting that, you know, a lift bridge would cost less than a than a double leaf bridge because there seems to be so much more mechanisms in a lift bridge. So it's interesting to think about the engineering of the different types. It certainly was, yeah. It, it, you don't think of it as you drive over it. It's just another impediment almost. But there was a, an awful lot of engineering and, and calculation that went into it. It, it didn't come, no, nobody flipped the coin and decided this is what we're doing here. <laughs> no, that's for sure, that's for sure. <laughs> um, what would you say are some of the impacts these bridges have had on the communities along the route of the Welland Canal? Well, if you think about the fact that there was eight of the bridges that were going to be geared to either exclusively or a dual railroad bridge, the railways themselves were totally, well, this was how you move goods in the 1920s and a little earlier. Uh, cars, trucks, 
yeah, they were available, but they weren't utilized. They weren't developed the way the railroad was. If you look at the actual construction of the canal itself, railroads were used all over the place to move goods, and not so much goods, but, but soil and stone and equipment. And so railroad was actually very much a, a very big employer in the area. Like you needed, obviously, men to repair the rails. You needed yard men. You needed engineers to run them. You, there was many people in, employed in just maintaining not just the, the railways and, and the trains which crossed over the canal, but the actual canal itself. So in that era, that was one of the big employers, and that's what helped develop some of the, the key spots, like where, where your, your yards would be uh, along the canal. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense, thinking about, you know, you put the canal, you build the canal first, and then you build these bridges over that, and, and having that infrastructure in place is what brings industry and people to the area to, to use those resources, right? course like all those men were all paid and i don't know what what the the exact amounts were back in the day but they were all earning money they were all usually trying to live as close to their place of employment as as possible so that just spawned they needed shoemakers they needed you know groceries they needed all the normal things that we think of today mm-hmm well, that makes a lot of sense and and what i think is interesting about this too is thinking more about um you know, all these industries come and, and then the communities that grow around that, right? Like, for example, in Welland, the city of Welland really grew around the canal and because of the industries that were set up around there. And in the end, the canal and the city became so busy that they eventually had to build a bypass. So can you talk about how settlement and movement of people might have... Um, might have impacted these canal crossings? Well, first of all, the the, the, the railroads obviously crossed. Uh, like I said, bridge number 15, bridge number 17 were both in the city of Welland itself. But what happened, like there's, there, there's more to this story, because what happened along the way, when as time de- developed uh, and the seaway became the seaway in 1959, it the idea was out there that perhaps we should be looking at building a bigger, deeper, wider canal. And whenever that, that was just an idea. It never made it onto solid paper, but that was there. And in the meantime, the automobile industry had basically, after World War II, had just grown. And consequently, if you look at Welland today, all the bridges like 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 are all in Welland, and they were all semi-downtown or just to the, slightly to the edge of Welland. Consequently, it was a total nightmare. So it became they had to get rid of the uh, the canal in town. They had to, so that was why the bypass. It, it was a dual reason. First of all, Welland itself was really totally jammed with traffic because of the, that that many canals. If you go on a hike from from number 13 to number 17 18 we're probably talking no more than three maybe three and a half maybe four uh, kilometers and if you pack all those bridges in that space it, it just has to be a disaster so that was why the that was why the uh, the, the bypass was built and that's why ultimately we needed uh, uh, tunnels to go on it 
cover the bypass. And I, I thank you for, for explaining that. I've always kind of wondered why the, the bypass was built. Um, another example that I thought of, of um, how canal crossings have really impacted communities is uh, the Port Robertson Bridge, Bridge 12, and how when there was no longer the Port Robertson Bridge, there then was a ferry. And that was, again, to continue to move communities across the canal. Could you talk a little bit about the history of the ferry? Well, bridge number 12, Port Robinson, was uh, one of those classic stories, uh, easily found online even even now, but took place in 1974, whenever the ship called the Steelton hit the bridge with such impact that it destroyed the bridge. The seaway was down for something like 15 days, and ultimately the decision was made not to replace the bridge. Port Robinson uh, had diminished from what it was back in the beginnings of the canal, and they just felt that it wasn't worthwhile to uh, to uh, build an, a new bridge because that was going to have to happen. Consequently, the seaway itself agreed to supply a ferry, uh, runs back and forth across the canal, and that became as a uh, well, initially it was supposed to be for the uh, citizens of Port uh, Robinson. Lately it's become uh, just really part of the tourist uh, route, and uh, whenever the seaway agreement ran out, the town of Floral picked up, and so the, we have, well, I, I don't know if this year we will have a ferry, given where we're at, but uh, uh, the ferry today is... is uh, run and organized by the the town of Thorold. Of course, Port Robinson is part of Thorold. Mm -hmm. Oh, I think that's such an interesting legacy of canal crossings, right? There's this history of the Port Robinson Bridge. It's moving people across the canal throughout history. And then when the bridge is destroyed, you know, the communities still have a need to cross the canal. So then this ferry set up. Um, I think it's kind of cool now that, like you say, the ferry is now mostly used as a tourist attraction. Um, they It's used as part of like a, a cross canal bike tour where you can take your bike along the Welland Canal Parkway and you can use the ferry to cross the canal and kind of do a nice figure eight around, along the Welland Canal. So it's kind of cool to see that the reason why we have a ferry today is because of the canal crossings history in the area. That's very true. Des, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to give us a short history of the different bridges of the Welland Canal. I'm especially excited to bring my new knowledge of vertical lift, leaf, and swing bridges the next time I'm stuck at one. Now that we've set a bit of a groundwork for our bridge history, in the next episode, we'll chat about the bridges still in use today and some of the new innovations made later in the 20th century. Well, Sarah... If you think about it, to wrap up today, if you think about the canal itself when it was built, little has changed other than the bypass. Like the route didn't change other than that. Basically, it is exactly as it was. But if you look at the bridges, initially 21, only 20 built, and today we're talking nine. And of those nine, actually one of them was built later. So the, there was a dramatic change in, in how you got across the canal today versus how it was then and of course this all factors into population and uh, how things have changed. 
I think that's a really great way to uh, wrap up today's episode. Thanks so much, Des. That's it for this episode of Museum Chat Live. This podcast was produced by Sarah Nixon with a very special thanks to Des Corin for sharing his research and knowledge. Museum Chat Live is brought to you by the St. Catharines Museum and Welland Canal Center and the city of St. Catharines. <laughs>